Next Chapter Podcasts. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey folks, it's me, Bridget, back one more time to say thank you so much for following along with season one of Beef. Y'all have really let us know how much you love the show and that makes it all worth it. But before we kick off more of our bonus content, let me ask you one more time to please rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And then go out and tell everybody about it. It really is the best way that we can help make more episodes. Now, let's get into our conversation with Keith Elliott Greenberg. Keith is a New York Times bestselling author and television producer. He's written articles for World Wrestling Entertainment Inc.'s WWE Magazine, Playboy, Men's Journal, HuffPost, Maxim, and The Village Voice. His books include December 8, 1980, The Day John Lennon Died, Too Sweet, Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution, and Follow the Buzzards, Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. In 2016, he co-authored the third edition of WWE's Encyclopedia of Sports Entertainment as well as the fourth edition in 2020. He's a regular writer, contributor, and reporter for WWE. And he also co-authored a number of biographies of professional wrestlers, including Freddie Blasey, Ric Flair, and superstar Billy Graham. In our conversation, Keith and I talk about pro wrestling's unusual history, the thin line between truth and reality within the sport, and the lack of punches pulled between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Keith Greenberg, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure, Bridget. So would you say that it's fair to say that this current moment that we're in right now in wrestling, wrestling seems kind of more ubiquitous than it's ever been, right? Like you've got these public figures and celebrities openly talking about their love of wrestling. Uh, do you do you think that we're in a moment where it used to maybe seem more fringe, but now more people are coming out and saying how much they like wrestling? Um, I think wrestling is a cyclical business. And I think there were other periods where wrestling was very trendy in mainstream society uh, during the advent of television. Uh, the first couple of years, the people had televisions in their homes. Uh, professional wrestling was cheap television and a lot of people were watching it. Uh, celebrities used to come to the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles and hang out and socialize with the wrestlers. And of course, during the Hulk Hogan era in the mid 80s, you had the rock and wrestling connection. And don't forget the main event of WrestleMania one featured Mr. T, who it's hard for people to conceive this, but he was at the peak of his fame. He was as big a television star as existed in the United States at the time. So, yes, you do have professional wrestlers crossing over in a way that they hadn't uh, at, at, at this volume in the past. But um, there have been other periods where mainstream people uh, were quite familiar with professional wrestling. 
before we got on this interview, I was looking at a list of celebrity wrestling fans, and it's like, it really is so such a diverse array. It's like Snoop Dogg at a wrestling event, Jon Stewart, Adam Sandler, Timothy Chalamet. Like, it, it, it really is a huge, diverse range of public figures enjoying wrestling. Yes, and realize Snoop Dogg's cousin is Sasha Banks, so she's a professional wrestler. And uh, so Snoop Dogg has been around the wrestling business for a long time. And in the hip-hop community, I think professional wrestling has been consistently popular, as, as well as with NFL players, you know, who award each other championship belts and have had wrestlers do tie-ins. And, you know, Ric Flair has done motivational speeches at, you know, before NFL games. So, again, um, you know, there's always been an audience for professional wrestling. I, you know, it, it, it seems more fringe than it sometimes is. What do you think makes professional wrestling so special? And like, what drew you into it? I think what makes professional wrestling uh, special is uh, the morality play. You know, you have essentially you have good versus evil and it's physical theater and there are elements of comedy and there are elements of daring where, you know, you can't believe the human body can endure the punishment that, that it does. Uh, you know, it's different than when I was growing up in the 1960s, because at that point, most of the fans were true believers. In fact, that's how I became a fan. My grandparents were fans and they were immigrants from the former Soviet Union and they thought they were watching legitimate battles. And back then, the villains tended to be, uh, you know, World War II heels. You had Nazis and you had evil Japanese villains, which was quite racist now in retrospect, who would do this elaborate salt ceremony before matches and then at some point in the match hurl salt into their rivals' faces. Um, so, I, But I do think it's the morality play, the physical theater. And fans today, you know, tend to be educated into the inner workings of professional wrestling more than ever before. You know, we live in the age of the internet and have for a, a generation or so. And so I think people, like last night I was watching wrestling with some friends and um, someone noted the, uh, uh, Kenny Omega executed a Snapdragon on an opponent. And the person next to me said, what a great Snapdragon and look how safe it was. So <laughs> I, think there's an, there, I think there's an appreciation of, you know, wrestlers being safe with their opponents and uh, you honoring each other by making it thrilling, but uh, respecting each other's bodies. What does it take to be a successful professional wrestler? Well, you have to be gifted with athleticism, which I never had, but I was fortunate enough to latch onto the industry by by um, writing about it. I think that's what it takes to be successful. Um, you know, if, let me start again uh, because I didn't incorporate your your sentence. Um, what it takes to be a professional wrestler is uh, incredible athleticism, um, and not many people are gifted with that type of athleticism. And then that might be followed up with a certain degree of charisma. I mean, realize you're telling stories in the ring. You're telling physical stories, but you're also telling stories with facial expressions and you're telling stories during interviews. You're telling stories with backstage vignettes. And if you're weak in one of those areas, if you don't project physically, if your face doesn't project, 
if you don't know how to sell properly and appear to be in pain when you should appear to be in pain, uh, you, lo you lose the audience. You always want the audience to suspend their disbelief. And that's not as easy as you would think. So speaking of just suspending disbelief, let's talk a bit about the Montreal Screwjob. Uh, can you tell me about the culture of professional wrestling around the time before the Montreal Screwjob took place? Well, you know, at the time of the Montreal Screwjob in 1997, uh, Bret Hitman Hart was marketed as a Canadian hero. And, you know, uh, the run-up to this period was he played a character who was a hero in Canada and a villain in the United States. The thing was that it wasn't really fake. Bret Hart would get on television and cut promos about how the United States was lacking because there was racism and gun violence and, uh, you know, not universal health coverage and why Canada was a better country. And Bret was speaking from, from his heart when he was talking about those issues. And I do think that Bret Hart viewed himself as a role model of sorts. And he took everything he did in the ring very seriously. And he was known as a guy who, if he didn't like the direction that a certain storyline was going, he would argue and argue and argue, and he had the clout to do it. And, um, you know, unfortunately, he and Shawn Michaels were polar opposites in many ways. And, you know, they started out in the industry as friends, but by 1997, they were not friends. And there had been a history of the two of them uh, having backstage altercations. And even when they were doing their interviews, they would deliberately say things to wound the other one. Uh, not, and that wasn't wrestling hype. They were trying to, you know, really give each other, you know, personal jabs. And, you know, you're going to when, you know, millions of people are watching those TV shows, that's going to lead to some bad blood. So these men were like friends at times, enemies at times. How were like what drew them to be friends? Like how were they similar and how were they different? Well, yeah, they, they started out as friends and they were similar in that they were um, they, they both had very strong work ethics. Uh, they were, you know, experimental. They probably, although they grew up in different uh, parts of North America, I think they probably likely idolized the same types of wrestlers. You know, uh, great physical, uh, let me say that again. I, I think Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, although they grew up in different parts of North America, uh, likely uh, idolized the same types of professional wrestlers, performers who were technical marvels, who could execute moves in the ring that you normally wouldn't see and could actually elevate the industry to a place that where fans now couldn't go back to what they'd seen before. So there was a lot of similarity there. And, you know, both men are Hall of Famers and both men deserve to be Hall of Famers. And, you know, their contributions are vast. And a lot of the wrestlers today, you know, there's a lot of Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels in what you see executed today. The difference between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, besides professional jealousy, and I think they're probably was a bit of that on both sides. And, you know, some of that is healthy. Uh, it turned on healthy. Uh, I think they represented different things at that time. Sean is a very different type of person now. Sean is now a trainer, 
uh, for WWE. And uh, is supposedly, from what I've heard, very generous with his time and with his knowledge. But at the time, Sean was a brash young man who partied a lot. And that was his character. And that was his lifestyle. And he was known as a backstage politician. Uh, Brett was too. But Sean was uh, known as a guy who would scheme a bit more to get what he wanted. And like, for instance... If he didn't want to lose a title, supposedly he would uh, say that he had an injury. Or at one point he said he was going to step away from the business because he'd lost his smile. And this enabled him to step to avoid losing a championship. Bret Hart, on the other hand, although he would argue to, um, you know, for a storyline to go to his liking, by and large, if he had to lose a match, if it was all to his liking, he would go along with it. The thing was that these two men uh, were so competitive with one another, they reached a stalemate and they really didn't, didn't want to lose to each other for real. What do you think was the root of their rivalry? Was it jealousy? You know, How much did they actually truly hate each other and how much of it was kayfabe? Um, kayfabe. Kayfabe. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I don't think they, I don't think Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels initially hated one another. I think they respected each other. And look, even when they were rivals, the two of them could get into the ring together, work together and trust each other enough to tell a marvelous story time and time again. But I think that, um, it was, I, I, but I think that, Brett and Sean, their personalities were not meshing. And I think they represented uh, different philosophies of life. Uh, Brett really cared about being perceived as a Canadian hero. And uh, Sean at the time was maybe a little bit all about Sean. Now you could say, what's wrong with that? I mean, you're, you're in a viper's nest. You might as well be your own advocate if, if nobody else, no one else is going to be for you. But um, they seem to be going along diverg divergent paths. And what made the relationship between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels worse was, you know, back then you didn't have script writers handing you scripts to read interviews. They were doing their own interviews. And they started to say very personal things about each other. And, you know, in front of the fans, on television. And that led to a lot of bad feelings. I think what makes the rivalry between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels so fascinating is the fact that they were very similar. They were both technical masters in the ring. And they were perfect opponents for one another at that period of time. And so... You know, every match they had was a really good match. Even though they disliked each other outside the ring, they were both professional enough to really turn it on when they had to. And so the notion that in a sport that is predetermined, there, this, there was a level of reality that fans were not accustomed to and that these guys truly disliked each other and you know, no one knew who was going to double cross the other. I think that's what made this extremely intriguing.
it's interesting to me how it ended up being this America versus Canada thing. Like, it almost harkens back to what you were saying about the early days of wrestling, where it would have these sort of, I don't know, storylines that aligned with, like, geopolitics or, you know, a, a social feeling. You see, I, I, if I, I'm sorry if I could correct you. Professional wrestling has always, to a degree, reflected the wider society because you have to draw people into stories. And so you play off of the sensibilities of the society. In fact, the one period where you didn't see a lot of that was during the Trump era, because the the United States was so polarized, neither WWE or its chief rival, AEW, wanted Trump even mentioned in passing because you didn't want to lose 50% of the fans. That's so interesting. Was was before he ran for president and became really political, was Trump a figure in wrestling? Uh, Donald Trump is a WWE Hall of Famer. In fact, my friend and fellow author Mike Edison and I, uh, we were uh, sitting with a well-known punk rock musician, a handsome Dick Manitoba, in 2013, and we watched Donald Trump uh, get inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. So... Sorry, there was, that was my computer. So, uh, so Donald Trump was, I wouldn't say an integral part of wrestling, but certainly a supporter of uh, squared circle combat. That's so interesting. Um, so to what extent do you think that this rivalry between these two wrestlers was really a rivalry between Bret Hart and WWE owner Vince McMahon? Uh, for a very long time. Vince McMahon was depicted on television, not as the owner of WWE, but as an announcer. He was a play-by-play announcer. And, you know, back when he was, when his color commentator was Jesse the Body Ventura, Jesse Ventura, the future governor of Minnesota, would tease Vince McMahon, like Vince McMahon was the straight man. When the murders took place, Vince McMahon was at ringside. He signaled, apparently, for, you know, the referee to demand that the bell get rung. Um, Bret Hart spit on him after the match. Now you couldn't pretend that Vince McMahon was a mere spectator. Vince McMahon was very clearly the owner of the company. And rather than running from that and hiding and pretending that something devious did not occur, Vince embraced it and decided to transform himself into the character of evil Mr. McMahon, the ruthless boss, which led to the Stone Cold Steve Austin era, when Stone Cold Steve Austin would beat up the boss on a regular basis, which was exhilarating for people everywhere who wish they could do the same thing to their respective bosses. Uh, WWE was unique at the time because there was one boss. There wasn't a pool of authority. Vince McMahon was the one who made every decision. And Vince McMahon was uh, not a lazy guy. Vince McMahon was involved in every aspect of the industry, from television production to, you know, I've seen Vince McMahon compliment uh, a ring attendant who wiped down the barricade because someone had thrown a beer. That's the degree that Vince McMahon was involved. So every single guy on the roster was competing 
for Vince McMahon's attention and approval. So naturally, Bret Hart as the two top stars at the uh, so naturally, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels as the two top stars in the industry at the time, uh, both coveted Vince's attention and admiration. And, um, you know, that was a big source of their rivalry, I believe, because, you know, sometimes maybe Brett was the one on top. Sometimes Sean was the one on top. But it went from being a healthy rivalry to perhaps, uh, you know, a bit of uh, bitter scheming at times. What do you think made their rivalry go from healthy competition to bitter scheming? Was there something that happened or a a climate that, that got it to that point? Um, Bret Hart was of the mindset that Shawn Michaels was not generous enough, that he wasn't willing to lose his championship when he was supposed to lose his championship. Bret had been willing to lose to Shawn Michaels, including at WrestleMania, uh, in a great match, a great Iron Man match that they had. And uh, Bret was of the mindset that Shawn was not willing to uh, reciprocate. So, um, you know, I, I think that... Although Sean has never disclosed this to me personally, I would imagine that Sean probably thought that uh, Brett was a bit too righteous. And as uh, the wrestlers would say, a mark for his own gimmick, like he really thought he was a, uh, you know, a, a hero and role model. But Brett took that very seriously. And so now you have two men who at the time had uh, diametrically opposed worldviews. Uh, if you spoke to either of them today, I think their philosophy would be much more there. If you spoke to either of them today, I think their philosophies in the current era and retirement would be far more aligned. Um, Sean has matured, perhaps uh, Bret Hart, uh, well, Bret Hart has certainly come to openly appreciate Sean's accomplishments, but this was at the height of their respective careers. And, uh, you know, they reached a, 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 a stalemate where neither wanted to give an inch to the other. Why do you think there's so much debate around whether or not the outcome of the screw job was a planned thing or something that like McMahon cooked up in the moment? Why is there so much debate around that? Well, I mean, look, this was the crisis that occurred. And this is a crisis. If you run a business, uh, you know, and the business could go uh, sour, you know, this it, it's a crisis. And realize a lot of people's livelihoods in, in the wrestling business were dependent on what happened, you know, in the main event. I mean, if you had a great champion who could draw, um, business would be good. If you had a champion you couldn't trust, business would decline and everybody up and down the card would be affected by that, as would the marketing people and the sales people and the licensing people. You know, this is a big company. So um, as the story goes, Bret Hart was, um, as, as the story goes, and this as the story goes, Bret Hart was uh, made an offer to go to the company's chief rival at the time, WCW, and he agreed to the offer. The problem was Bret Hart was the champion. Vince McMahon could not take a risk of Bret Hart coming on his rival's television show with the WWE championship and throwing it in a garbage can. 
This had happened before. Um, Medusa Michelli, who had wrestled in WWE as Alundra Blaze, went to WCW with the Women's Championship and threw it in a garbage can. Now, did it hurt ratings? It was a blow to WWE. It somehow sent a signal that WWE's championship wasn't as worthy as the Rivals' championship. So the mission was get the championship off Bret Hart. Bret Hart apparently was willing to lose the championship, but he did not want to lose to Shawn Michaels in Canada, where Bret viewed himself as a role model, and he was bitter at Shawn, apparently, for not um, being generous himself when it came to losing titles. And so he dug in and didn't want to do it there. I can see where Vince McMahon now was faced with this dilemma. How do I get the belt off of Bret? I can take a risk that he'll lose it three or four days later. What if he just absconds with the belt and takes it to the rival? Then, you know, our company is diminished. And so Vince McMahon was put in this position where he had to scheme to remove that belt from Bret Hart, whether Bret wanted it removed or not. What do you think the lasting impact of the screw job was on the world of wrestling? You know, the Montreal screw job came about during a period when fans were suddenly clued into the inner workings of the business on the internet. Had it occurred 10 years earlier, I don't think it would have resonated in the same way. But now every single person who watched that show could get online and speculate about it. And every guy backstage, whether they were on Brett's side or on Sean's side, could reach out to the newsletters and the websites and, you know, give their opinions on it. And so the community of the wrestling community was all involved in the gossip. And to this day, the gossip persists because here we are talking about it now. I mean, it's fascinating. Keith, I have to tell you, you have you you obviously have like a wealth of knowledge about this, but you have such a passion when you speak about wrestling. It's really charming and infectious. Like I could watch you talk about this all day. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, w- I wish I had the same passion about other aspects <laughs> of my life. <laughs> I'm Bridget Todd. Thanks for listening to Beef. And remember to stay petty. Who knows how far it'll take you? Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference. 
All that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Next Chapter Podcasts.